thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. On this week's episode, we're trying something a little different. Instead of discussing what pilots do while in the service, retired U.S. Navy Captain Kevin Miller joins us to explain what many fighter pilots do after leaving the service, including the transferable skills that typically lead to success in the civilian sector. Captain Miller also offers us a glimpse into his two critically acclaimed novels that so accurately depict squadron life aboard an aircraft carrier. By the end of this episode, you'll learn how to win your very own autographed copy of his first book, Raven One. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone. This is Vincent, and you have found the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We are up to episode 20 today. Wow. It's been going by really quickly. We will get to our interview with Captain Kevin Miller in just a few minutes. But as always, before that, some quick announcements and listener questions. We've got a slightly shorter interview than recently, so we should be able to get through some of those questions that have been building up. Well, first off, I want to wish my American and freedom-loving listeners everywhere a happy Independence Day week that just passed. I hope you had some good time off with family and friends. I did in Southern Oregon and really enjoyed myself, but I was also getting this episode ready for you, but that's how it goes when you run a podcast. Some of you asked about my comment last episode regarding my three quote-unquote entrepreneurial tenants we had in our home for the summer. Well, I don't want to bore you with that, but suffice to say, we got them out of there and a little extra cleaning was required, but no permanent damage, so I think we're in pretty good shape. Well, I want to mention that on Patreon, we are having a really good run right now. We've had many listeners come aboard and help us out. I think we're up to 45 listeners now that are helping keep this show ad-free. And I specifically want to mention three by name. One is our new division lead, which is at the $10 level per month, Alexander Way. He came aboard to help us out, and in doing so, he gets behind-the-scenes audio and video excerpts from interviews with our most recent podcast guests. And the way I do that is right before we start the interview, I record a short video with my guest, and we talk about what we are about to talk about. And then I usually stitch in a little video of something related to the topic. And then at the end of the interview, we have, again, a quick discussion on how it went, what we talked about, and what people will think of the interview. So if you join Alexander Way at the division lead level, you will also gain access to that. And you also will if you are at the $25 strike lead level, like Samuel Sroka, who recently signed up to help us out. Not only does he get that, but he also obtains access to unedited interviews with our episode guests as soon as they are recorded. So essentially, I don't do any editing of the ums and ahs that I like to get rid of, or the pauses or the cell phone interruptions. I just throw it right on there, making sure, of course, first that there was nothing classified that snuck in, and they can listen to that right away. I also send Samuel and all of our $25 and higher level listeners two four-inch Fighter Pilot Podcast logo stickers and a two-inch magnet. And he also gets a personal signed thank you card from me for helping support the show. Now, we're glad to welcome and thank our second Airboss, which is the $100 a month level, and that is Eric Otterson. He will receive a 20 by 30 inch photograph of a picture that he selects from among those you might see on Instagram if you follow us there. 
and that shows up suitable for framing. It's even signed by me, and he also gets to help us out with determining what order our future episodes will come out in and what some of the topics will be. So if you are interested in joining Eric Otterson or any of our Patreon supporters, go over to patreon.com and search Fighter Pilot Podcast. And in fact, Eric has a couple questions to lead off our listener question segment today. He's from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and he says, love the podcast. I'm trying to figure out what you did in the F-18 for a climb and descent profile. Did you climb at military power like we do in the airlines and simply pitch for speed? Or do you just accelerate to, say, 350 knots and then hold a certain power setting and then pitch for 350 until mock transition? Well, great question, Eric. We would normally take off in full afterburner to expedite getting off the runway quickly and as safely and efficiently as possible. And then we would typically deselect afterburner shortly after takeoff. We would then climb at full power until about 10,000 feet, accelerating to 300 knots as quickly as possible. We were able to ignore generally the 250 knot restriction below 10,000 feet in the United States. And then at 10,000 feet, my technique was to accelerate to 350 knots and then climb at 350 knots because that was the most efficient profile. Now, we do have a mode in the F-18 where we can select climb and a carrot will show up on our airspeed indicator and it will indicate for us our most efficient climb profile. But that was only if you were really worried about your fuel or for whatever reason being as efficient as possible. Generally, we just climbed at 350 knots until we got up to our cruise altitude. Eric goes on to ask, where do you switch over to Mach in the F-18? In the Airbus, we transition at around flight level 290, which is just 29,000 feet, but with a standard altimeter setting. Is that similar? Eric asks. Eric, we actually have both indicated airspeed and Mach available in the HUD all the time, and we really did not select an altitude where we switched over. We used both interchangeably, and my personal technique was I just used the regular indicated airspeed the whole way up. So there was not necessarily a hard transition like at flight level 290 that you mentioned. We would just fly generally indicated airspeed, and if we needed to reference Mach, we would. Eric goes on, in the F-18, do you guys shoot for an idle descent and just take the speed the jet gives you, or do you try for a speed coming down as well. The technique I used there, Eric, was to double the altitude loss and then add about 10 miles. So let's say I was at 30,000 feet going into Buckley Air National Guard Base in Denver, which is about 5,000 feet. Well, then that's a 25,000 foot loss. So I would double that is 50 at about 10. So I would generally try to descend beginning at around 60 miles from the field, and I would just pull the throttles completely to idle. Now, in the F-18, there's an interesting peculiarity where if you go all the way to idle, the nozzles will actually open, and at that power setting, you don't want open because they won't produce as much thrust. But it does that because it thinks when you're on the ground, when you're at idle thrust, it wants to put out as little thrust as possible so you don't blow someone over if they happen to walk behind you. So in fact, the most efficient way to descend in an F-18 is to go all the way to idle and then just creep the throttles forward just a little bit until you see the nozzles begin to close again, but before you see any increase in fuel flow. And that way, just like putting your thumb over a garden hose, as the nozzles are closer, the thrust comes out a little faster. And so you get just a little bit more thrust out of the aircraft, but without a penalty of burning more fuel. Eric goes on, also, I've seen charts for bingo profiles. Some profiles for low drag index have you going up to flight level 400. How do you get up to 40,000 feet if you're running out of gas? What's the most fuel efficient way to get there? Well, you're right, Eric, and for everyone else, a bingo profile is simply, I'm about to run out of gas and I need to do something quickly, an emergency profile, to get where I need to go. So what we would do there is we would do a level acceleration at full power using military power, but not afterburner. And we would accelerate generally to about 480 knots and then begin a climb holding that until, to your earlier point, intercepting a Mach, which was generally about 0.75 or so. And then we would hold that to as high as, you mentioned, 40,000 feet, and we would do a max range cruise profile at that altitude, and then begin an idle descent, and we should, if everything works out correctly, land with about 1,500 pounds in the regular F-18. 
Now, the reason that works is if you start it when you're supposed to, in other words, if you get to your bingo fuel and it's time to leave, let's say you're around the ship and you have a field that's suitable, well, you're right. You are burning a lot of fuel climbing in mill, but it is the most efficient way to climb quickly so that once you get up there, you can cruise at a very efficient profile up at that high altitude with the thin air. And then when you're descending in idle, you almost don't burn any fuel at all. So you use what little fuel you have to accelerate and get up to altitude. And the rest of the time, it's very, very efficient. And you can land with, again, about 1,500 pounds if you do this correctly. All right, Eric says, last one, I promise. In the jet, you have two comm radios and two mids radios. How does that work for who you're talking to? Are mids reserved for intraflight comms and one and two are for ATC or air traffic control or other controlling agencies? And how do you name them for radio changes? I notice in the F-16 they say AUX for COM2. Probably not the Navy procedure, but just curious. So every aircraft has the two UHF-VHF radios that you mentioned there, Eric. And then for everyone else, MIDS is simply Multifunctional Information Distribution System. It is a link system that allows aircraft to communicate over a different system than just the UHF-VHF. So, Eric, depending on what you're doing, usually the UHF-VHF, which is up for COM1 and down for COM2, and yes, we do use AUX for COM2 in the Navy F-18, we will generally use those for inside-outside communications. What I mean by that is COM1 or up will generally be with air traffic control or the strike common frequency during the tactical portion of a mission. And COM2 or down will generally be for any wingman that might be with you. And then forward and aft for mids, alpha, and bravo. It just depends on your mission that day. But generally, that will also be for intraflight communication. Great questions, and thanks again for your support, Eric. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. Hi, this is Richard from Boston. In episode 19, which spoke about air-to-service weapons, both you and your guest briefly joked about how it only took about 24 hours back on the carrier to appreciate being stationed on land again. And I was wondering, what adjustments did you have to make on the home front when you were deployed at sea uh, compared to being at, you know, back at your home base? Did you easily communicate with your family when you're at sea? You know, did you have email or maybe audiovisual communication back with the family? I can't even imagine what it's like to be in the middle of an ocean and not be able to speak or see my family, you know, for months uh, at a time. So I'm just wondering what the adjustments were that you and your family both had to make. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And I will uh, look forward to listening to this episode. Thank you. You know, it is difficult, Richard. And I thank you for your question and acknowledging for everyone just how challenging it can be for the families. In fact, I'm hoping to have a future episode on this very subject. It might be a little softer than the bombs and missiles we normally talk about, but I think people will enjoy it. It is difficult, no doubt about it. We do have email, which makes it nice. There is internet, but it's generally pretty spotty and slow, at least it was when I left the military. And so it's not quite good enough to Skype or see your family all the time. And there's only so much bandwidth out there on the ship, and they have to use it for the strategic purposes of the ship. So by the time individual users get on there, even just getting to your bank statements is generally pretty slow. When I first came in the Navy, there were sailor phones that back in the late 90s even charged a dollar a minute. I don't know what it is now, but you can call home. And it's funny because you've got this delay in the system. And so you almost have to find yourself saying over, like, how are the kids over? Because that way you don't step on each other and waste a bunch of time. But Usually when we pull into port, we will get hotel rooms or an admin, as you will learn about here in the upcoming interview. And with internet these days so good in most hotels around the world, you can catch up on Skype time and family time there, and you can call home. And on some ships also, you'll occasionally have an opportunity to read a book in front of a video for your child, and then they will send the video to your home and the book itself. And depending on how you know the age of your child, they will have that opportunity for you. But it isn't easy. There's, there's no doubt about it. If you recall the Facebook Live session we did last time with Sunshine, he talked about he had been gone so long that his young daughter didn't recognize him and, in fact, was afraid of him. So it is a sacrifice. It is an adjustment. And we'll look to cover more of that on an upcoming episode. But thanks for your question, Richard. All right. Next up is a question from Jason in Fargo, North Dakota. 
Have you ever been struck by lightning while flying a mission? What actually happens and what are the potential risks of such an event occurring? Jason, I've never been personally struck by lightning. I've heard of it happening. I will tell you that towards the end of my career, when I was delivering a jet from the depot facility where I worked to an East Coast squadron, I had to go through a line of thunderstorms. And as I was flying through some pretty heavy rain with lightning flashes all around me, I wasn't holding the stick because I had autopilot on, but I had my hand near it and a little small bolt of static electricity, similar to when you're walking on carpet and you reach for the door handle and you get that little shock. Well, that happened between the stick and my finger. And then a moment later, I felt it between the bayonet fitting of my mask and my cheek. And I knew at that point that I probably needed to get out of that thunderstorm. So that was a little sketchy, but that's as close as I've come. But I understand that for the most part, aircraft are designed to be struck by lightning. I mean, it doesn't sound great, I realize, but mostly it generally enters via a wingtip or the nose, and it travels on the exoskeleton, if you will, of the aircraft and usually goes out the wing or the tail. And if the aircraft is designed correctly, typically the electronics are shielded. But once in a great while, you will hear that that, you know, one million volts of energy from a lightning bolt fries a generator or a monitor or radio system or something. So it's not very common for that to happen. Apparently, it's pretty common for airliners to be struck by lightning. They say on average, each aircraft maybe once a year or once every two years. But for military aircraft, it's not that common. We generally try to avoid flying directly through thunderstorms. Although (laughs) apparently I'd forgotten that that day. But as I recall, I was trying to get to my destination with limited fuel. So made the decision to go through. And had I stayed any longer, I can assure you I would never have done that again because that was kind of scary, frankly. All right, next, Rob Evans from Kentonsville, Maryland. How do naval aviators maintain proficiency with carrier landings when not on a deployment? Well, Rob, we fly the same pattern entry and landing altitudes and procedures at the field, at least at Navy fields, as we do at the ship so that we have the muscle memory of that. And at Navy fields, we have the same landing light signal system that we had in episodes 13 that we talked about. I believe it was maybe 12 and 13. And we also, on the runways, will have a carrier box painted. So in other words, what the flight deck would look like on a carrier, we have that painted on Navy runways, and it's right next to the lens, and that way we can practice the same procedures over and over and over again. Now, the wind is not generally always right down the runway when the runway is fixed at a normal field. And, of course, you've got different elevation as you're coming in, and there's just not that level of intensity when you're at the field as you will have at the ship. But what we do is before you go to the ship again, we will start off with briefs from our landing signal officers in the squadron. Then we will do simulators, and then we will go out and do several field carrier landing practice evolutions where we will do dedicated landings over and over and over so that when we get to the ship, yes, it's the real thing. Yes, the wind is where we want it. But no, the numbers and all the procedures are no different, and so we rely on that muscle memory to get around the corner safely. All right, last question from Steve in Toronto, Canada. Are personal weapons issued on deployment? What sidearm did you carry? Did you also carry a fighting knife or bush knife? Why? Are there rules to the type of ammo? Is a secure holster provided, or is that your own kit? Obviously, if you eject, you don't want your sidearm ripping off into the wild blue yonder. Well, yes, Steve, weapons are issued, at least for firearms. Some people carry knives. I never did. But for firearms, you have to carry the squadron-issued weapon. I believe it was a Sig Sauer P228 the last time I carried one. And they also give you standard ball ammo. You can't carry hollow points or your own ammo. And in fact, they generally would put the magazines in a Ziploc bag and tape it up anyway so that you wouldn't lose a bullet accidentally, which happened plenty of times. And the holster they provided you, yes, it was securely attached under one of your arms. And ideally in an ejection, you would not lose your weapon, of course, otherwise it did you no good. And I think I mentioned this on a previous episode somewhere, maybe it was the Facebook Live. I I started getting lazy in the 05 deployment. I I didn't carry one. And it wasn't that, you know, I didn't think I would need it. Well, I guess it was, but I just figured the likelihood of going down and the likelihood of needing a sidearm was such that the check-in and check-out procedures and the uncomfortableness of the 
weapon when you were flying just didn't make it worth the while. So I, I got lazy and quit carrying it. But the uh, six, six hour P228 and nine millimeter standard ball ammunition was what we carried and a knife if you were so inclined. All right, well, that will do it for our questions. Let's get on to our interview on what pilots do after leaving the cockpit. Okay, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, I am joined by retired U.S. Navy Captain Kevin Miller, call sign Hoser. Hoser, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jello. Great to be aboard. Outstanding. Well, we always like to start every show with a quick background on where the guest has been, what he's done. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I was one of those boys that uh, wanted to be a fighter pilot ever since I can remember. Uh, my father took me to uh, Quonset Point, Rhode Island in the 1960s, and there was an aircraft carrier, USS Lake Champlain, last of the straight decks. And uh, he had a friend aboard the ship who showed us around, and, and I was struck at the age of five. I, you know, this, this is cool. You know, the airplane's on deck in Narragansett Bay, and there's ice cream in the wardroom. So, hey, this is for me. That's important for a five-year-old. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So got myself into the ROTC program at the University of Mississippi and was commissioned in 1981. Went down to Pensacola to begin my journey, got my wings in 1983 in Meridian, and uh, got the A-7 uh, at Cecil Field near Jacksonville. And uh, so learned how to fly that and uh, then went to attack squadron 82 aboard USS Nimitz and did uh, two cruises and uh, two workups on Nimitz, qualified as an LSO. And then I transitioned uh, to the Hornet. First learned how to fly the Hornet at VFA 106 at Cecil, then became an instructor there, an LSO, you know, day-night carrier landings. From there, uh, CAG LSO, Air Wing LSO aboard uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower in the early 90s. And then just stayed in Air Wing 7 with a VFA-131, where I was a department head, and we did another deployment, and the first deployment aboard USS George Washington in 1994. Cool. After that, uh, did a stint over at Tyndall, a paperwork job with the First Air Force, uh, the joint tour, if you will. Selected for XOCO and went back to Cecil as the XO and then CEO of VFA-105, the Gunslingers. We deployed on Enterprise in 1998 and 99. Uh, after I left there, uh, did a year in war college, and then uh, wrapped it up in the Pentagon with uh, two tours, one in OPNAV, and I finished on the SECNAV staff in the Office of Legislative Affairs and retired in 05. So quick public math, how many years of service was that that's, then? That's 24 years. 24 years. Well, on behalf of all my listeners, thank you, sir, for your service. Now, most of my guests, we talk about something that you did during that period of time, in your case, 24 years of faithful and honorable service to the United States Navy. But on this particular episode, we want to talk about what fighter pilots and military aviators in general do afterwards. So if you could continue the discussion and let us know what you've done since 2005 in retired life. Yes. I, I knew a year before I retired that, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to retire. You know, you make that decision and, and everyone knows when that time comes. And, uh, uh, you know, if it's five years, 20 years, 35 years, uh, you make the decision. And so no regrets. And so I, I networked around Washington. I knew I wanted to stay in Washington. I mean, you can stay in, in the place you want to live, make the salary you want to make and have the job you want to do. You get to pick two of those three things. And so <laughs> so uh, staying in Washington was uh, was job one. And uh, and I started working for a company called the PMA Group. It's a defense consulting firm. And uh, it was pretty much what I was doing in the Office of Legislative Affairs. We're in, we're in the same clothes, uh, talking to the same people on Capitol Hill, uh, this time on behalf of clients. And so I had a portfolio of clients that were my responsibility. And, uh, and we would uh, make a case for, for member ads. And, uh, and we also did business development for clients that, that needed to, you know, who, who do we, you know, we have this, this new cool widget, you know, how do we market that inside the military? So we did all that. And I did that full time for five years. In 2010, uh, I went to the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation in Pensacola, and that was a, a wonderful job. I was the executive vice president and chief operating officer there, and we did the centennial of naval aviation and got the National Flight Academy across the goal line there in Pensacola. I left there and uh, went on my own as a uh, defense consultant, as a corporate trainer, 
And then I got into this writing thing that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Indeed, we will. Okay, well, I want to talk about transferable skills and the characteristics that you leave the Navy with and how that transfers to a civilian sector. So in this case, you stayed, you stayed in the same, essentially the same area, and you said you even wore the same clothes. Were you not wearing a uniform when you were doing that when, job? When you're in legislative affairs, uh, you wear a suit. And oh, uh, so okay. you're... you're my office was in the Pentagon, but uh, you go to Capitol Hill, and you know that's you know business dress is the norm, and so you know you're wearing a, a suit, so you uh, you fit in. Okay, maybe they just don't want citizens to think Capitol Hill's being overrun by they, the military or something. That, okay, yes. fantastic. Well, in that transition, where and we've tried to talk about on this show. I mean, when you're in a squadron and you had the opportunity to lead one, you're surrounded by like-minded people, generally cut from the same cloth, and and you have certain abilities to insist on certain performance. How does that transition to the outside world? It can be a challenge. The population of fighter pilots, you know, we, we have confidence in our abilities. And, and the reason we do is because, you know, we have been pushed, you know, throughout our careers by those ahead of us to, uh, you know, to make us, you know, as competent aviators uh, and also as, as competent officers. And, and I think that one skill that we have pound for pound better than any other group is the ability to speak in public. And, and we know that, that uh, you know, we have opportunity to speak in public uh, in, in a brief. It could be a large brief or just four of us in a room. But, uh, you know, you're up there and you're on. And, uh, you know, your, uh, your fellow aviators are going to critique everything you say. And after the, after the flight's over, you're going to get critiqued on that. Um, and so that, that, makes us, that makes us good. So I think our ability to communicate the confidence with which we do that, it's, it's impressive to people. I agree. Um, I, I would add to that, and, and we can continue talking about some of the other traits, but you know, a fighter pilot is used to getting things done. Yes. So we probably carry that just about anywhere, no matter what career we end up in. And, and I would say, for the most part, with a few exceptions, there's always outliers, but people leave a career in military aviation and are generally successful, I think. Yes. And I think it's because, like you said, you know, uh, in fact, we talked about it on episode one, you know, the ability to command a room. You're comfortable in your own skin. You've been critiqued before. You've been tried and tested in a career that can be very challenging. And, and when you leave the military, you leave with that confidence of, hey, I know that I could land on an aircraft carrier at night. So whatever this other job is, I can probably do it. <laughs> But in addition to that, I would say also, don't you feel like you have the ability to make a budget and stick to it, make a schedule and stick to it, and just have general skills or, or characteristics that people find worthwhile? In other words, you know, your ability to be where you say you're going to be on time, do the things you say you're going to do. I mean, that, that sounds like a transferable skill that would be desirable, I would think. Yes, and, but it, it is interesting, though, that uh, in the military, in our careers, let's say when we were operations officers, okay, here's, here's a chunk of hundreds of thousands of dollars for this quarter. And so you get that big chunk of money, and your job is to spend it down to zero by the end of the quarter, you know, with, with just pennies left. That's, and that, that, that's the mark of a of success uh, in, in, in business, of course, you start with nothing and now you have to, uh, you have to make something. And, and uh, in my role as a consultant, I would advise the, the client, okay, you know, here's, here's how we start. This is how we have to sell this to this office. And, you know, to, to get anything in a, in a defense budget, all kinds of stakeholders. And uh, so we used to start with, uh, with bottom-up deck plate users. Hey, we have this new widget. You know, we want to show it to you. You know, we want to get your feedback. And then with that feedback, we could, uh, you know, go to uh, perhaps a, a, a flag office or, uh, or on Capitol Hill and say, hey, you know, this, this would be worthwhile for some R&D money to get this new technology in the military. So it was, uh, it was different in that sense that, you know, we have to, to build up instead of uh, spend to nothing. Absolutely. And just again, for the listener who may not be aware, R&D, simply research and development. So the funds needed to take some idea, in your case, uh, you're saying a widget, and hey, this is a great idea, but let's really make this thing operational and, and take it yes. through that process. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. 
Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Now, I'm curious though, have you ever come across somebody who doesn't appreciate the skills and traits that you left the Navy with? In other words, you know, not everybody's like us. And some people like to be a wallflower. Some people like to kind of sneak by or slide by, but we don't really suffer fools very well, do we? So I, I wonder if you've ever come across anyone who has said, you know, calm down or, or just didn't like the fact that we are, I would say, competent and get things done type of people. Um, yes, you know, and, and it, it happens. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, people can be uh, intimidated or... You know, I think a, a danger for us is that uh, that that we tend to believe our own press. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're fighter pilots; we can land on ships. In, in our case, um, but okay, fine, that was wonderful. But now <laughs> we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> now you've grown up, and you're in the real world. <laughs> yes, and, and so you know, we we have to. This is a task at hand. But but yes, you know, your earlier point is that you know we adapt to it. Um, I'm reminded of fighter pilots, and uh, and I know several, and I'm sure you do too, who find their way into uh, Wall Street, if you will, in the financial industry, and and are quite successful because you know there's attention to detail and managing, and assessing risk and managing risk that we're we're very very familiar with. Yes, I wanted to add that onto the list and talk about some of those other traits, but those are two very good ones. But yeah, let's go ahead and touch base on that because a lot of fighter pilots leave and frankly take the easy route like me and just go to the airlines because we're up in the same airspace. We understand the business. It's relatively easy. We like the time off, the ability to travel and all that. So, But to your point, people end up in finance. People end up, I've got some friends up in Silicon Valley. A lot of people go back to academia. Uh, in your case, you had kind of an interesting smattering. You, you stayed in DC for a while and then decided to go down to the museum, which for any of our listeners, if you're near the Pensacola area, you should definitely go check that out. And you can still get on the base to go see that, right? You sure okay. can, yes. And, and then you struck out on your own. So you've seen a little of everything afterwards and had success in all of it. But I want to know what led you then to write, because while I fancy myself a writer in so much as I have written an article, I think it was about eight pages, but nothing in my formal career as a fighter pilot necessarily set me up for that. And I find that when I write, it's with fits and starts because I feel like I've got the idea and I sit down and then I freeze in front of the keyboard and it, it's difficult. It's part of the reason I've yet to add a blog to this <laughs> internet uh, show that I'm doing my podcast. But you were able to figure that out because you have two very successful books. So tell us a little bit about that process into writing. You know, all of us know how to write, and, and we write professional reports, and there's a way to do that, and, and you get good at it. But I, I also knew that I had a, a creative writing ability that, that I've always had. After I retired, just out of the blue, a friend said, you should write a book. And I said, uh, <laughs> he said, no, don't give me that. You, you know, write a book. And I, okay. And so I did. And, and so what I wanted to do, you know, it, it's the, the people ask you at, at a – Oh, I say at a cocktail party, hey, you know, wow, you flew fighters or you are flying fighters. What is that like? And how do you answer that question in, in 20 seconds, you know, uh, at, at a party without, you know, monopolizing too much? So I decided I'd write a book and I wanted to have vignettes in it. And, okay, here's what a carrier catapult launch is like, what a landing is like. Here's close air support. Here is what a, a 1v1 training hop off the ship is like. And then to get into some, some real-world combat situations, such as uh, you know, what many of us have experienced over Iraq and, and in, the, in the case of uh, my first novel, Raven One, in the Arabian Gulf. So I put those vignettes together, and it took me years to write it because I, I'd, you know, in a fit of activity, I'd write 5,000 words, and I'd put it away for a few months and pick it back up. 
But when I finally had it finished, I knew I had something that, that was worthwhile. And it's, it's another long story as to how we got it published. But, you know, I had no dreams of being an author, a novelist, and, and here I am. Well, that's really cool. So it's interesting that you say that because some people have that epiphany and write a book, in your case. Some people have that epiphany about sharing this information and start a podcast. And for the benefit of our listeners, let's just tell them the rest of the story is not long after this podcast launched, uh, I forget how you found it, or did you ever tell me, but you, you found it somehow. And you reached out to me and lo and behold, we connected. You sent me two of your books. Thank you very much. I devoured the first one, Raven One, in about 10 days. And I'm about 100 pages into the second one. Um, but we're kind of trying to do the same thing here, in a sense. Yes. yes. And uh, after I, uh, I finished Raven One and published it, uh, my editor, Linda Watchman, uh, she told me, okay, you've just signed yourself up for a new job. You know, now you've got to write another book. I mean, and, and people often say, hey, that's a great book. When's the next one? <laughs> you created a bunch of druggies, <laughs> <Yeah>. huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the gestation period uh, to, to write and publish a novel is, is, uh, can be daunting. But, um, but also marketing it. So, so here I am. I'm an independent author. And I'm an, an entrepreneur in that sense. And so... Uh, I have all my rights, and everything is me. So it's up to me to to promote it. So I'm I'm searching through uh, you know, okay fighter pilot podcasts, and I forget what I what I put in Google, but uh, it, it might have been those words, and and you came up, and so uh, so I reached out there. So that, I've done that with guys in Australia and, and elsewhere. That's really cool. Now the interesting thing is when I read your book, it was too close, frankly, for my taste <laughs> to reality, because it took me back. I've led that life. And the descriptions that you provide are spot on, by the way. So congratulations on writing a fantastic book. Thank you. I mean, just the emotions that the pilots have on the carrier, the, the flight operations themselves. But I have to tell you where I got the biggest kick is was your description without giving away the story of when they pull into a port and they have what's called an admin, which I don't know where that name came from, but it's for everyone who's uninitiated. It's just, you know, you would think that after a couple months at sea, cooped up together, we would want to get away from each other. But no, somebody goes ahead and rents a giant room, a suite or a couple rooms, and we all just crash there and party together for a few days. And your description of that was, was spot on, you know, people sleeping in different places, under tables, on couches, passed out, you know, going out and partying. I had to laugh at that. So you, <laughs> you definitely have a knack for taking this industry uh, maybe that's not the right word, this lifestyle and really distilling it into a story that people can read and enjoy. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Uh, what kind of feedback do you get from people like, unlike me, I should say, who didn't lead the life? D does it, does it give them, I would hope it gives them an authentic look at it, but do, do they get it? It's a great question. And, and in, in general they do. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the reviews that I get on Amazon about 80% of them are from people that, that I do not know. You know. And many of them have, have no background in the military, but it's, it's, a, it's a look into our former world, and it's obviously authentic. And they say, wow, this is really what it's like. So you'll, I'll get feedback. Like, you know, I had no idea the amount of preparation. I thought you guys just got in and flew around like the movies. And so it, it, I'm heartened by that. I mean, because, you know, you and I, we want people to know the, the level of precision, professionalism, and... You know, we have goals that, that we want to, to complete on every flight and, and nothing more. Or nothing less, for that matter. No, yes. I agree. And again, that is why the two of us have done, or at least tried to achieve the same goal, which is to explain this. Because as is, I hope, evident is, you know, movies have to sacrifice some reality. I mean, nobody's going to go and watch a two-hour movie. You wouldn't even get through the whole brief on some of these missions in a two-hour movie. So there has to be the hero's journey, you know, the ups and the downs and the twists and all that. And, and real life is maybe not always quite so exciting, but you definitely found a way to do that. And the, the one thing I would say is your story, it does teeter on that a little bit because in this one book, you have three different things that, frankly, 
I never had happen in my career, and I'm, I'm glad for at least two of them, and that is a barricade landing, a shoot down, and a get shot down slash a fatality. Actually, I did have some of those, not my own, of course, but uh, watching friends, and that's never fun. But So you, you did bring all that drama into a short period of time in the lives of the pilots in that story, uh, which if that were real, I think that, <laughs> that, that would be maybe a little more dramatic than some folks can handle. But again, it, it ties in all these possible things and, and puts it into one believable story, and it really does show everyone what we do. Yes, and, and it, it is fiction. And, uh, you know, my, my hero and, and his squadron, wow, what a deployment. I mean, there's just all kinds of action. It, it, is, it is fiction, but it's, it's obviously realistic. And, and uh, you know, it could happen the, the, way, uh, the way described. So, again, it gives uh, the reader, the uninitiated, a sense of, of the professionalism that, that our men and women are exhibiting each day on the other side of the world. Hoser, you'll have to forgive me for this awful example, but it's a little bit like the movie Titanic because the sinking and a lot of the details of that story are true. But yes. of course, the Jack and Rose love story thing is a distraction, yes. uh, but eh, it's still a good movie. I, I admit I like it. But so your, yours is kind of the same thing. It's real world things that we do or did in our case, but with a fictional story to it. But real locations, you change the name of some squadrons, you change the name yes. of some ships and whatnot. And that's prudent, of course. And our hero, of course, uh, you know, without giving away the story, he then makes it on to Book two, he gets promoted, and now we are in uh, Declared Hostile is the name of the second book. And in this case, I maybe should have read faster because I'm not done with it, so I don't want you to give too much away. But how was the leap from having, you already talked about there was no downtime. You, you created all these people that wanted to get more. And how was it then going to the second one? Did you find the process easier? Yes. And uh, I wrote Declared Hostile in a little over a year because I knew that I, you know, I, again, I, I had something. Wow, people like this, so okay, I'm going to write another story. So I had an idea for it and uh, uh, was more professional about it. The, the goal for writers is a thousand words a day. And, uh, is that a lot? A thousand <laughs> words a day <laughs> is, is the equivalent of a, uh, a high school five-page double-space essay every day. Oh, wow, okay, that's a lot. <laughs> Are your palms sweating? I have a high schooler, so he <laughs> hates writing one of those a year. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's what we're talking about. And and so even with Raven One, I'd written some, uh, I'm sorry, read some books about writing and one by Stephen King uh, on writing. It was very good. And just, you know, how he approaches it. What authors should do is write, just write, get it down there and then come back to it after a period of time, you know, print it out on paper and you take your, take your pen and, and go through and, and fix it. And, and polish it, and and that that is uh, that's a great technique. It's worked for me. So put a lump of clay on the spinner, yes. and then start whittling it down. That's so, it. the Pixar movie Ratatouille is famous for saying anyone can cook. Uh, are you here to tell me that anyone can write? No, I'm not. Okay. And, and I think that uh, you know individuals are going to find out if they have talent or not. And and I would say try, and you might be encouraged. You know, I was uh, you know I I sent Raven one to you know, a half a dozen, maybe a dozen agents in New York and no takers, but, uh, they said, Hey, you know, you have some ability. This isn't for me now, but keep trying. And so that, that was nice to hear. Now, now others have, have been say, okay, look, you, you have no chance. <laughs> and you know, that, so there's, there's something to be taken from there, but, but if you try, there's never been a better time to write. That's probably true with the equipment in the technology that we have. Uh, Print on demand and right. e-readers led by the Kindle, which dominates, is just, it's like the Gutenberg press, how it's changed publishing. Okay. Now, so you had an affinity or at least an ability uh, for writing from the get-go, but again, tying this back to the topic of the day, did you feel your career as a fighter pilot, besides obviously providing the credibility of having lived the life and knowing it, but the transferable skill of being a fighter pilot, did that affect your writing? I, I think so. You know, the, and I'm not telling you that I do a thousand words a day. I assure you I, uh, I don't. And so I need to be more disciplined. I, uh, I'm not a, uh, a disciplined outliner. And I kind of, especially with, uh, with Raven One, I kind of would, would sit down and, and all of a sudden we're, we're at some place that I had no idea 
but it's kind of cool. So it's like an artist in a sense with a blank slate. You yes. can just see what comes out. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and that, and that still happens for me and it's, it's, it's great when it does. Cool. Well, what's the future hold in this series of yours? I'm uh, just finished uh, my third novel, and this time we're going to the South China Sea. And uh, just uh, did a lot of research. I've n- I never uh, was a Westpac guy. Always, oh. uh, always Atlantic Fleet. You know the Med and Indian Ocean. Uh, never served in Westpac, and uh, so I did a lot of research. And I talked with uh, many shipmates who have been over there to get their Paul Mill overview. And and these are these are guys that are in flight suits up to retired four stars with whom I'm acquainted to get their, their sense of what's going on over there. Now did a lot of research on what's happening in the South China sea. Excellent. Yeah. So Westpac meaning Western Pacific. So you were always based, I kind of glossed over it earlier, but Cecil field doesn't even exist anymore. That's yeah. a Naval air station in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, the airfield is still there. I think what Boeing or somebody uh, uses the, the it. airfield is still there. I, uh, full disclosure, uh, a consulting client of mine, uh, Jacksonville Jetport. Oh, okay. Yeah, no worries. And so you did all of your deployments from the east coast of the United States over through the Med to the Arabian Gulf. Yeah. It had you deployed along the time I did in the 2000s from the west coast. You might have passed through the Westpac, but still ended up in the same you're place right, because right. a lot of my yeah. deployments, and I've done both coasts and Japan, uh, but a lot of ours ended up right there in the Arabian Gulf. That's been the hot spot for the last quarter century or so. All right, so the hero, uh, I, I, I guess I almost don't want to know, but he's going to continue into this third story. So he lives through my, my second book here we're that gonna, I'm reading. We're going to promote him and, okay. uh, and, uh, and bring along some of his uh, shipmates from uh, Raven 1 and, and Declared Hostile. Fantastic. Well, what about you? Are you? Is this your road into the sunset? Are you going to continue writing or are you going to go back? I'm going to continue writing. Okay. And uh, the, next, the next one that I have in the on-deck circle is uh, a historic fiction, and what I want—I've—I've I've always had an affinity and interest in the Battle of Midway. Just a fascinating human story, and and you know the fog of war, the uh, there's there's issues of of pride, there's the indecision. You know what what's next, what's over the horizon that, that we can only imagine these days with all the the whiz bang stuff that we have. Um, so so that's that's next, and and. Uh, you know, you may be familiar with uh, the Killer Angels by Michael Shara. This is a sto- uh, historic fiction about the Battle of Gettysburg, and uh, you know it's it's you know putting words into Robert E. Lee, into Longstreet, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. You know, what was the human emotions? What were they really saying to each other? And so that's what that is. So uh, you know, we know the the record of of Midway and, and other battles, um, and, and plenty of other authors do this, by the way. Herman Wolk comes to mind. Okay. And uh and, and uh, Michael Shara's son Jeff as well. So uh that's what I'm gonna get into next. Outstanding. All right. Well gosh, uh what haven't we covered? Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today? You know, there's a um you talk about what, what fighter pilots are, are, are doing in that niche. There's a there's you know one area where they excel is the uh um you know changing corporate cultures and, and I I've done this a couple of times in, in talks that, that I've given to companies that have that have no background in our former world. But it's uh, how we brief and debrief, the, the constructive criticism that we give to one another that makes us get better. And, and this is difficult for people in, in, that, that have never been exposed to this. And to get that exposure and to inject it into a company is a challenge, but it can be done. And there are companies made up of former pilots that are doing quite well consulting, for example, to the offshore oil industry. Yes. And, and you're, you're talking now about Check Six. Okay. And, and they are uh, a, a very successful uh, company. They Check Six manages, uh, or I should say, they, they teach people how to manage risk. And uh, so, yes, the offshore oil industry, the, the energy industry is really in their niche. Pretty dangerous. And uh, attention to detail is, is vital. It's vital to safety. It's vital to the bottom line. Uh, another company uh, that does this is called Afterburner, and uh, and you may have seen these guys. They're in their flight suits and you know very high energy, and they're they're talking to maybe an auditorium full of people about about this um, construct that that has been so successful for us. Um, individuals have gone out on their own and, and done this, or maybe a small small groups. Um, we talked about Top Gun on Wall Street, a guy named Jeff Lay, 
who was an F-14 pilot uh, in the late 90s. He found his way into Wall Street and, and uh, wasn't too impressed with what he saw, and so he wrote a very good book about it. Kerry uh, Lorenz also is another uh, one of these keynote speakers who, uh, who has written a book uh, called Fearless Leadership. And, and books like that are, are very effective for speakers, especially when they're out on their own, um, to, uh, to, to market themselves. So they can take all those transferable skills and apply them and be very successful after the military. Yes. Um, briefing and debriefing. And so, you know, we, it, is, it is so natural to us. But uh, in the civilian world, say, okay, uh, Mikey over there, I want you to go on the sales call. Okay, um, so Mikey uh, may not have had much training, or it might be very informal training. Oh, yeah, it's easy. Just go in and, you know, kind of here, here are the slides. It's easy. You'll, you'll do fine. I mean, and, and you and I would never live that way. But so Mikey goes and, and makes the sale. Okay, good. Well, how did you make the sale? Is there, is there any debrief on that? Let's capture these lessons learned and, and teach the others. And that doesn't happen. Or if the sale is not made, now there's bad feeling. Oh, Mikey, you blew it. And so Mikey feels awful as he drives home from work and, and is, is concerned, hey, maybe this isn't for me. So, so, you know, what we do before we even brief and debrief, we have training, formal training, and qualifications. Okay, we're going we're gonna to train you first on exactly how you're going to do this, and now you're going to be qualified. You are now a qualified salesman. And then you go off, and, uh, you know, we, we're now going to trust you with our company and our product. And, and certainly this happens in the civilian world, but uh, not to the nth degree that, that, that we would do it. And, and there's nothing wrong with the nth degree. You know, we want that. And so, to, uh, but I think that the thing that most concerns people that didn't grow up with this is the debriefing, the constructive criticism. Which we live with. So we're brought up that way in a career in military aviation. And, yes. and so we introduce that because that's where the learning happens. Right. So in your example with Mikey, if no one says anything to him afterwards, he's left to wonder what went right or wrong, depending on how the outcome was. But but in this case, we can quantify some goods and others, as we put it, and give him something that he can take home and digest and come back the next day and do better. Yes. And that's another thing about, you know, our, our former life is, OK, maybe uh, maybe this whole hop was a big other. But uh, we're, we're going to spend some time. We're going to go over it. And, and we don't personalize it. We don't say, Mikey, you know, why did you, you know, we say, all right, a best practice is for when the salesman walks in to set up the room this way, you know, things like that, third person that, that, because of our, our fragile egos. <laughs> and and uh, I'm sure that, that that also crosses over. Uh, so, so those, again, I mean, just, just how, to, how to give criticism. We know how to do that. We know how to give it and how to receive it. Outstanding. All right, Hoser, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been a really interesting discussion. It's a new direction for the podcast. Normally, we talk very specific about things that we do in uniform and in the airplane. In this case, we're talking about what happens afterwards, because you're never the same after you've flown a fighter. You certainly know that. And in fact, you're in the uh, Thousand Trap Club, are you not? Yes, I'm a bagger. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So, yeah, you, you can't come away from experience like that and, and, and not be altered by it. Well, Jill, I want to say congratulations to you on, oh, uh, well, on you. your career and your service, but also in, uh, in starting this, uh, this podcast, which, which is a, a terrific way to educate the public on, uh, on what we did, you guys like you and I, and what uh, so many are doing today. Well, in that case... Uh, Thank you. And again, it kind of goes back to what we said earlier, which is you and I are trying to do almost the same thing, but slightly different avenues. And that's a good thing. But before we hang up here, always the last question of the show for my guest is about the call sign. Now yours sounds kind of interesting. Please tell us how and why you ended up with Hoser. Hoser. Yes. Well, in uh, the summer of 1985, uh, my Nugget Cruise, I'm flying an A7 over the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, and it's got a buddy store on it, the good old D704 in-flight refueling store. Oh, so you were a tanker. And a nugget means it was your very first deployment yes. as a fleet operational so pilot. I'd, okay. I had been recently qualified to fly the tanker all by myself. Okay. And uh, so F-14 is joining up on me to get some fuel. So I uh, extend the hose into the Airstream and it just runs to the end and, and falls off the airplane. Just a zip crack gone <laughs> in the bottom of the med. So, nope, sorry, buddy. Uh, that night... In a different airplane, different store, one of my squatter mates joins up. And so I put the hose out for him. Hey, I'm here for you. And same thing, falls off the airplane. 
Is there some pilot yeah. error involved in this? I mean, usually it's just a switch, right? It's no. not like you can switch, flip well, the switch poorly. That's right. Is there a pilot error? See, because <laughs> you know, you're, you're on to something here. When you're a nugget aviator in a single-seat airplane, it's your fault. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's so, uh, kind of what I was getting to, what, but again, it's really not. What did you do? So, so I knew that was going to happen for me. And uh, so I was so embarrassed I didn't tell the ship. That was a mistake. And uh, so I, uh, after one-way conversation from my CEO, uh, Hoser. And uh, so uh, the next day, one of my squatter mates, I was on his wing, and he puts the, uh, the hose out. And the same thing. And it just kind of extended out into the airstream. And you could see that the rubber was just kind of sliding down the interior of the hose. He was able to reel it back in. And uh, we were able to find that the hydraulics were not being serviced. The, the thing would, the basket would just kind of open up in the airstream and just run out. And instead of being paid out, mm-hmm. it would just, just run zip and, and fall off. So. so some petty officer or sailor somewhere earned you a call sign Hoser, through I, improper hydraulic probably, servicing. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> well, as we talked about on our episode on call signs, sometimes it's just a play on names, and this time it's something that happened. But hey, at least nothing worse happened, it sounds like. Nothing worse happened. Okay. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all you do. And we're going to uh, say goodbye, but we're going to look forward to your next book. When do you when do you expect it out? Or early I hate to September, put you on the spot. Early September. Of 2018. Of okay. Year. Yes, we're, in, we're editing it now. Yes. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, we'll look forward to that. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did, and I know the listeners did too. Thanks a lot, Jello. Sure appreciate it. All right, let's get out of here. Okay, once again, big thanks to Captain Kevin Miller, Hoser. And the savvy listener may remember that on episode 16, the air boss fielded a question from him. And also, Captain Miller talked about VFA 105, and those two were together in that squadron, and they still keep in touch today. So, in fact, that's when I met and recorded that interview was when Captain Miller came out for the air boss's retirement and change of command of the Naval Air Forces. So as we talked about, we are trying something new with the book and a giveaway. So we are doing a King Sumo giveaway, and it's a promotional website type service that I learned about. And so if you go to the Fighter Pilot Podcast website or any of our social media, you will find a way to sign up for this giveaway. There are different ways to earn points. And in the end, the King Sumo site will create a winner, actually two winners for us. And I will pass that information on to Hoser. He will autograph the book and address it directly to you, and we will send those to you. Now, if you can't wait for that to happen and you buy on Amazon these books, well, two things. First off, I hope you'll use the links that I will provide on this show in the notes and on the website, because it doesn't cost you anything more, but it helps to support this show. But secondly, if you buy a book and then you end up winning a book, well, I will buy one of those books off you because I truly believe that I can use this to give to someone else and that I think everyone will really use it. I know I'm pushing these books and yes, it is a little self-serving because it does help support the show. But I'm not kidding. I really did enjoy these books, and I led the life. And I think you will really find it fascinating. And if you don't, let me know, and maybe I'll just go ahead and buy those books off you because I really do think you'll enjoy it. And I look forward to the third installment coming out soon. Well, as always, I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Well, I hate to say it, but that's going to do it for this episode. I think we've run out of time and material, but we'll be back as always in 10 days or so for another installment. I hope you'll come back and join us then. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for all that you do and helping promote this show for me and getting it out there to other listeners. And so we'll see you back here next time. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, 
follow and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.